So is is 32-bit float on my wave file? Is that is is that okay? Yes, that's fine. You can deal with 32 bits of floating point numbers. <laughs> waka waka. Yeah, somehow my my computer can deal with 32 bits of floats. Awesome. It's amazing these days what computers can do. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Beats, Rye, and Types, your favorite podcast about food, computers, and music. I'm MRB, and I'm here, as always, with my man, AQ. What up? And we are uh, privileged this week to be joined by uh, our guest, Alex Payne. Hello. Hi, and Alex introed us in with Death Grips, I Break Mirrors with My Face in the United States, and we always ask our guests why they chose their particular song. So Alex, why did you choose this particular song to intro us in, in a super intense way <laughs> our podcast? I mean, when, when you asked for a song, I did want to pick something kind of over the top and ridiculous. And it's harder <laughs> to think of anything more over the top and ridiculous than like any Death Grip song, but especially that one. It's just so like, you know, punk rock. They're, they're great. Uh, I saw them a few months ago here in Portland, and uh, it was just like one of the best shows I've seen in a really long time. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Did you break any mirrors with your face? <laughs> I did not, but I considered it. <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool. That's cool. Is, are they like super high energy live? I assume so. Yeah, they're, it, a... they're just super intense. They just, they just come out and like put out everything for an hour or so and then just leave and like lights up. And, and, and like, no one was upset, right? Like no, no one was like, oh man, those guys, you know, owe us an encore. They just, they, they like sweat it all over the stage and then just like <laughs> gone. Observe our sweat. Yeah. <laughs> Come bring them out here. The show is over. We wanted to have you on the show, Alex, because, you know, we uh, always just think about awesome people that we know and have interesting things to say about food or computers or music, but I think you're one of the few people who I would actually entertain a conversation with about any of those three subjects. Right. There's only a few dozen human beings that I would <laughs> abide conversations in all three of about. That's just how I am. Uh, Aaron is a lot more forgiving than I am, but um, you, you have the hat trick of things. Uh, and so I think that there's some, I think we have interesting things to talk about in, in all three subject areas. But I know that in a, because of an email exchange that I observed between you and Aaron and setting up for the show that you have, you recently had a food related writing assignment uh, that you were working on. We, so we could, we could chat about that. And so, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think people that listen to this show, they probably know. Uh, that your favorite programming language is Scala and, Damn it. or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, and, you know, you're a, you're essentially a banker that writes Scala all day or something like that. If I read your if I read your Twitter profile correctly, so 
Whatever about that stuff. What about what about new, what about the new shit? Uh, we like the new shit, and then and the next thing. So, what's on your mind now? What's the latest like cool thing that you did? We I want to hear about this project. Cause I because I know Alex were pals, but I didn't I didn't I didn't know about this thing. So tell me about it. Oh sure, no, it's it's not like a, a super big deal or anything. Um, there's this uh, vegan magazine that started here in Portland. Like of course it it started here in Portland, and and their whole thing is like. There, there's a bunch of magazines for if you're just trying to figure out like if I want to you know eat more vegetables like what do I cook for myself every every week that kind of thing. Their whole deal is like sort of travel and culture for people who've been vegan for a minute and and kind of they they want to go out and explore the world but they have this sort of con- constraint slash motivation to like go to particular places experience things a particular way. My now wife and I were in uh, France earlier this year. And uh, I wrote up like our whole five week trip for this magazine, kind of like from from Paris down through Provence, uh, back up to Dijon, uh, you know, eating vegan, cooking vegan the the whole time. Not something that maybe people typically associate with with France, (laughs) with their with their culinary tradition, but it can be done and uh, actually was was pretty rad. Well, so tell us some tell us some highlights. That sounds cool because I've eaten I've eaten in a lot of those places, and I don't. There are things I can think of, particularly in Provence, I guess, that I ate that were that were vegan. What what were the types of places? Was there a mixture of places? Were you eating like in a limited way at some traditional places, or were you eating in modern places, or was it a mixture of those things? Sure. I mean, in Paris, there were plenty of you know kind of contemporary places to eat. Uh, Paris weirdly is all about vegan burgers. There's like at least three, maybe four different places to go get a pretty decent vegan burger. Uh, one place in particular was awesome, a place called East Side Burger uh, that happened to be like right where we were staying. So we were completely just jet lagged and, you know, a mess and starving. And, uh, you know, re- like Google mapped it and we we're like, oh, this is stumbling distance away. This is amazing. Paris was was pretty easy. Once we got to Provence, though, it was just cooking for ourselves all the time, unless we wanted to just eat like bread uh, or, or, or like a, a plate of, of lettuce that would probably still have cheese on it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. That went really well. Uh, like Nicole showed up with a, a whole bunch of Provencal recipes that she wanted to adapt. And we, we even brought in like vital wheat gluten and, and stuff that we weren't sure that we could get in stores on there, which it turns out we you totally can if you know where to look, um, especially in the, the larger cities down there like Opt. But yeah, so, you know, we're swapping out chicken for homemade like Provencal seasoned seitan and that kind of stuff. That's wild. Yeah, I, I like there. I mean, there's a whole trend in the world now for like very vegetable focused cooking. Right. But that's that's kind of still like a a good distance away from vegan cooking because it's like it's still most things are still slathered in butter and you know especially in france i assume like that's definitely the case like uh there's a chef at arpege i'm blanking on his name but he's a famous french chef who tweets all his like recipes every day and his entire menu now is vegetarian like he doesn't do any any meat but it's still like you can tell it's like here are onions poached in butter for four days it's like okay sure. well yeah that's probably not gonna work so that that's that definitely sounds like a challenge you're halfway there but yeah not, not, <laughs> yeah, not quite <laughs> so in provence for example you're you're basically just exploring the the produce and the like i guess what do you call i guess the other whatever 
not, I guess, so there's the produce, which is the stuff that grows. And then there's the uh, other like food products like spices or tapenades or whatever that are things that you can eat in bread and, and things like that. And your, uh, so that's cool. I mean, that that's a really, I think that's a super uh, interesting way to uh, experience a place. I know from, you know, some, some experienced older, like, travelers that I know, like, who wouldn't want to, like, stay in a hotel and just go to restaurants all the time. Uh, a nice thing to do is, like, try to rent an apartment somewhere and go to the markets and find that kind of stuff out. So what did you learn? Like, did you eat, did you eat some vegetables that you had never eaten before or i mean i'm sure that you did because there's some they have interesting spices yeah, and herbs sure. I mean, and vegetables and stuff that you're like what the hell is that <laughs> even though it's europe it's not the other side of the world necessarily but there's there's a lot of diversity yeah for sure i, I wouldn't say there there were any like particular vegetables that we couldn't usually get that 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 like jumped out at us but spices i mean just spice mixtures like we we went to these you know fantastic like uh, city center markets and just, you know, these like huge spice vendors uh, with all these kind of regional um, spice mixtures and stuff. Um, those were amazing. You could pretty much take any of those, put them on any other thing and come out with a delicious meal. Incredible uh, local olive oil, just like un unbelievable. I mean, people think Italy and California for olive oil, but the the Provencal olive oil was just like so rich and just all these like nutty flavors that come through. Those were fantastic. Did you do that like slurping it thing? Like they want you to like <laughs> spray it into your mouth. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the way you must taste the oil. You're like, no, nah, I'm just going to put like... this in your vaporizer. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Atomize this to the dome. No, we didn't. We didn't do like a, like an olive oil tasting, um, but we, we just grabbed some and, uh, and ate way too much of it. We, like we went through a ridiculous nice. amount of this stuff for, for <laughs> you know in, in like three weeks. Man, amazing local mushrooms uh, oh, of, of yeah. all sorts. Like like you know from we 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 were staying in these tiny little villages and just went to whatever the farmers market was in that village or or the next one over. Every like all the locals sort of seem to know the schedule and it's just like on any given day there's some town within you know like a twenty minute drive that's having a farmers market. So and we and we were there every day every other day. Yeah, just kind of bought like whatever random assortment of mushrooms uh, some old dude was selling and those were incredible. Those those got thrown into a risotto that was just like one of the best risottos I've ever eaten in my life. That plus so. that plus the olive oil plus, you know, all yeah. the spices I bet. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Well, I I mean, I, I did know you were vegan, but I didn't know that it was is it has been like a very long term thing. Have you always been vegan? Was it like a change relatively recently? It was a really big change for me. I mean, I, I was an omnivore and like a like, I mean, a voracious omnivore, like, you know, so, you know, I, I loved eating like chicken hearts and just weird shit. You know, I, I went out of my way for food. You know, I, I'm definitely like a foodie traveler over over the last uh, 10 years or so. Like any city I was going to, you know, my top priority was like, what restaurants do I have to hit? The super high-end, fancy, you know, chef tasting menu kind of places, as well as just like interesting street food. Never really like rationalize that with my with my ethics. Uh, you know, I think like 
like a lot of people, I just sort of looked the other way and was like, I, I can't justify eating animals to myself, but I'm just not going to think about it. And so like had a couple of long stints of vegetarianism, but it, you know, it, inevitably like there'd be some moment of weakness and I'd crack and like have a pepperoni pizza. But yeah, so several years ago, uh, I just, I got a lot healthier than I'd ever been in my life. Like I, I was running and doing yoga all the time. And this weird thing happened. I think like Murakami or some other Japanese uh, author who had written this thing about running for the New Yorker years ago, he described this phenomenon. And it's, it's like the only other time I've seen someone describe it where it's like the more active I got, the less my body wanted animal products somehow. I, I don't really understand what the correlation is because like normally we think like, you know, oh, someone's getting super active. They're working out all the time. They need protein. They need to like, you know, beef up. But that was not at all like what, what my body wanted, I guess. So I was making myself eggs one morning and just looked down at the pan and was like, nope, like I've, I've never really been comfortable with this ethically. And like now I just don't want to put this in my body anymore. And that was it. That, it was just like cold turkey overnight. That was about three years ago. And, you know, ever since then, it's sort of become a more and more important part of my life. I think as I've made more friends in that community, as I've gotten to know some of the organizations doing, you know, animal welfare and harm reduction work of various kinds, you know, everything from people advocating to Meatless Mondays to people advocating for like removing battery cages for chickens, um, you know, organizations that are on the really pragmatic side that are like, let's just improve quality of life for animals or organizations that are, you know, maybe a little bit more hardline of like, let's, let's try to get any animal product consumption out of the, the marketplace. Uh, I sort of, I, I know, I know what my personal practice is, but I'm glad that people sort of uh, ex express that view through a variety of ways. I am a voracious omnivore and I feel like I'll, I'll probably stay that way for a long time, but I have definitely like flirted with the the dark side a lot in terms of uh, going vegetarian or vegan. My, I actually grew up with my mom. My mom's a vegetarian and has always been. And so we didn't eat like we ate very little meat in the house growing up, mainly just takeout Chinese food was basically the only meat we ate in the house. I actually, a couple years ago, I, when I was living in California, we used to go to this uh, hotel called the Stanford Inn, which is like in Mendocino. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's like this, it's this beautiful, 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 amazing house complex on the hill overlooking uh, the town of Mendocino, which is also like on the cliffs with trees and everything behind it. And it's run by this group of people who are like, vegan and really try to have everyone eat there be vegan and all the meals are vegan and it was definitely the first time I had any like vegan food like completely vegan food for an extended period because we stayed there multiple times for a couple days at a time where I was like oh, okay this you know the substitute stuff I, I can't really deal with but when it's just like here's really delicious vegetables presented you know with great right. flavors like that that I can more get on board with and I totally, I get the, I get the ethics of it. I get it. I don't know. There's just something in me that's not gonna, that, that won't make me want to stop a certain things that I truly appreciate. I guess is the, is the problem. Um, but maybe I don't know. Maybe you can yell at me enough, and I'll, I'll, I'll be convinced otherwise. <laughs> no, that's not. You know, I'm, I'm not 
really about yelling at people about it. <laughs> I, I mean, so I've gotten to know um, some, you know, vegan restaurateurs and bar owners and stuff. And I've actually in invested in a vegan burger chain that's, uh, you know, expanding to Portland. They're, they're opening their second location in, in a couple weeks. You know, kind of the consensus from a lot of those restaurant owners is having like a really low key, like no animal rights literature strewn about the place kind of environment. That's better at converting people than anything like just like serve healthy food in a nice environment at a reasonable price. And kind of over time, people are like, oh, I can have a satisfying meal without killing anything. And, you know, maybe they make that choice like once a month and then once a week. And, you know, it, it creeps in over time. Or like the burger place has found that, you know, a lot of older folks who are dealing with heart stuff, like, you know, their, their doctors are saying, hey, you like you need to make some changes if you want to actually hang out with your grandkids. You know, they, they look for alternatives and, and find that, that that really helps. True. Yeah. I found a lot of interesting stuff about what you said. I like I think what you said is true now more than ever about people have a, having a variety of outlets for like acting on acting on the system that they disagree with in terms of like how food is distributed and consumed and produced. I think that really aligning yourself with aligning yourself with reducing reducing meat consumption and recognizing the negative impact that concentrated animal feeding or uh, operations and stuff like that have on the food chain and on our, and on people's health and all that kind of stuff is important and i was you know there was a long time where i didn't i was vegan for a long time and vegetarian for longer than that and that was always something that and that was before I think I had a really subtle understanding of how things actually worked. And so it was, it was immensely frustrating to me because I didn't understand how to, because I was young, I didn't understand how to. But also uh, like that information wasn't really, I mean, a lot of that information well, wasn't. Well, I was just kind of dumb. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a variety of things. That information wasn't around. But what I was trying to say is that I didn't. I didn't know how to interpret the fact that, you know, the whole world operated this way. And it was so obviously like the wrong way to do things. I couldn't handle that. So I just basically went in one whole direction. I was like, okay, I won't, I won't support that. But it was so immensely frustrating to have to really like, it took so much effort to live that way. Uh, and to live healthily that way is really was hard and isn't cheap. And I think that's part of what a good thing about proliferation of like vegan fast food is, is an amazing thing. If you can get cheap food to people that's healthy, there's a lot to talk about here because producing vegetables cheaply is also very damaging to the environment and hard to figure out the right way to do. And having an establishment or like a chain of places that cracks that code, I think is going to, when that happens uh, and the like so-called like Chipotle effect like takes place and people figure out like how to do vegetarian and vegan like cheaply and cleanly, I think that's going to be a massive, awesome thing. And people wouldn't have a hard time giving their kids, you know, vegan food three days a week if it looked like chicken nuggets or whatever. I would be cool with that. I don't, I don't really care about, I don't prefer to eat like certain things, but I think it would be nice for me to be able to show my kids like how to, how to do that and eat that way more for myself. So talk about that. What's the latest? Uh, I, I know you're an, I know you're a studious chap, so I'm assuming, I'm assuming, you know, or you've thought at least a little bit about it. What's the right way to make it mainstream? Cause if I want to help, I want to help make it more mainstream too. How do I, how do I make that 
Because our interests are aligned, for sure. I, I think that we, everyone should pretty much eat less meat. No one should eat meat that involves, like, torturing animals while they're alive. And the same is true for milk and eggs. And I'm on, I'm on the same page with you about it. I want to support that. What's the right, how do I think about it? And, and what's that going to look like when it actually happens? Yeah, well, I think sort of broadly, there's a couple different ways to think about it. You know, for, for people like us, it's a choice. And then I think for a lot of the rest of the people on the planet and a lot of the people who are coming to the planet in the, in the next 20 years, very, very soon, making it a very crowded place, it's not really going to be a choice. Like you were saying about vegetable production, I think tied up in all the vegan stuff is issues of food security and environmental issues. So right now, like, you know, here in, in the U.S., especially if you're affluent, especially if you're in a major city, you know, you get to make the, these kind of choices. You can sit back and say, like, I want to buy meat or I want to eat at a nice vegan restaurant. Here in Portland, we have, you know, an, uh, one all-vegan grocery store, and, and, I, and we're about to get another. That, that's true in Seattle and some other cities. So, you know, if you're in one of those cities, which probably most of your listeners are, going vegan now is super easy. I, I, like, I, I feel very, very grateful that I made this choice at this point in, in time. Because, you know, traveling around, like meeting different people in this community, eating at different places, you can tell that there is this sort of, there are these like distinct eras of vegan culture and, and vegan cooking, especially in, in the U.S. Like, you know, there's sort of the first wave of like vegetarian and macrobiotic places where everything is healthy but super flavorless. Then there's this sort of second wave of, I guess I always think of Seattle, you know, when, when I think about these sort of places where they're like, they're very punk rock, you know, they're these sort of like anarchisty feeling places with, you know, a community bulletin board and everything's like a little bit dirty and the service sucks, but they, they're they really good at doing like, you know, sort of vegan junk food, right? You know, they, so they, they'll put like a, you know, good vegan burger in front of you or, or whatever. And those places are, are cool. I love finding them when I travel around but they're not places that most people want to eat in. They're not places most people want to bring their kids to or, or a date to. And now there's this kind of third wave of vegan places that are doing this sort of Chipotle style, fast, casual dining where everything is clean and nice and just sort of like super capitalist efficient, uh, right? Like, you know, the, the places are designed to scale. They're designed to be changed. They're designed to push, you know, hundreds of people through them every day. Places like Veggie Grill, uh, you know, or an example, are native foods. And, and then there's, there's now people doing like super high-end, you know, molecular gastronomy kind of cooking uh, that's, that's all vegan, which I think is, is another important thing because folks who are sort of food trendsetters, the, the people who other people in their lives ask for dining recommendations, right? Like those are the places that they're going to go seek out. And, and you know, they're, they're the places that I think kind of prove that you can still celebrate food and, and treat it as, you know, this kind of cultural artifact and almost like a ritual, a sacrament, you know, all, all, these, all these important things that we associate with food and, and not involve animal products in that whole thing. So that, that's kind of on the like, the, the, the sort of the side where you have choice, where you, where you have money and you're in the first world and you have all these options. You know, kind of looking down the road to all the food security issues associated with this stuff, you know, people like our, our planet is just not going to support uh, eating meat as as such. Like, I, I think in the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to see meat production get very scarce, very expensive. You know, if you think that stuff like Kobe beef is expensive now, 
you know, I, I think it's going to be insane. You know, Blade Runner, where someone, you know, has like an actual snake that isn't genetically engineered, and that's like so insane. It's so rare and expensive, right? Like, I, I think I think a lot of like naturally born meat and dairy is going to be like that in our lifetimes. The thing that's coming right behind it, though, is uh, cultured meat and synthetic dairy. Uh, I mean, stuff that that on a genetic level is meat is milk, et cetera, but is, is all you know, lab produced, commercially produced. A lot of that stuff is coming out of the research phase and is being sort of productized, commercialized right now. Have you, I don't know if you've read, do you, do you read any sci-fi books or like future? I do, from time to books time. Books like that. There's, there was this really interesting, um, I was going to say there's the the Mad Adam series. I don't know if you've checked that out or read no. that. They're really, really fascinating for a lot of different reasons. But I mean, she says it's not science fiction, too. It's like, a, I forget the phrase that she uses, but like alternate reality. Speculative fiction. She really believes that these are all things that could happen. And based on what you're saying, what I've read, too, like in the book, there are like these cultured chickens. They call them chicky knobs that are basically like chicken breasts that grow on trees. Basically, mm-hmm. that's like the concept. And it's literally like a tree of just like a mass of chicken meat, which sounds disgusting and is, but it's like, actually, that's probably not that far from what's going to happen, which is, I don't know what's more disturbing, like just hearing about it or the fact that it's like actually not that far from reality, but it's it's definitely like seems like that's something that's coming. Sure. Yeah, to me, like, I don't know, I've sort of lost the taste for meat. So like, e- even if I don't know. It'll be interesting to see in the next few years, like if someone puts a plate of lab-grown meat in front of me, I don't know if I would even really want to eat it necessarily, but it'd be nice to have that option. Uh, a massive chicken flesh growing on a tree seems a lot less gross to me than like an animal living its entire life in a tiny box, uh, you know, kind of barely able to breathe because there's so much ammonia coming up from the floor of the, you know, shit around it. Like that, like the, the, the way we raise animals right now seems seems a lot grosser. Yeah, that's for sure. It will be, I mean, and it, it's kind of like, I agree with that. It's, I think the question of if, I think it's, a, it's, I think it's sort of an interesting question to ponder about the ethics of how grown meat will work or what, what it really means to like grow meat in a laboratory and what it really means. I don't think I really know enough about it to, to make a judgment about it. But so those are the different kind of categories of what vegan dining are. So what do you, so you think the future will just be that synthetic, synthetic meat products will be what is the sustainable way to produce protein. And, and that will be what people will mostly consume. It seems like it sort of has to be that way. I mean, it's, it's totally unclear right now whether producing that stuff is sustainable. If, it, if it's actually more resource efficient than, than raising animals, like like most technologies, you have to assume probably for its first generation that it, it won't be uh, more efficient. You know, like if, if you look at all the uh, nut-based cheeses that are coming onto the market right now, like, you know, it, it costs a lot to, to keep a cow alive, to milk it, to produce cheese. It also costs a lot and uses a lot of water to raise a bunch of almonds to then, you know, culture them and make them into, you know, actually pretty decent cheese. And, and then the resulting product, that, that little thing of almond cheese is going to be like $11 at your local Whole Foods. And, and so, you know, it's definitely a luxury item right now. But those companies are also super tiny. Uh, a lot of them have, you know, just gotten their first, you know, rounds of funding in, in the last 18 months. And it'll be interesting to see if, if they're able to kind of scale up 
production or, or if that just always stays a, a specialty item. I, you know, a, another interesting thing that I think is happening just on the, the vegetable side, like, you know, here in Portland, uh, there's this organization called EcoTrust and they spent a couple of years like mapping the local food system and realizing that there's all these farmers growing all this produce but they're really disconnected from actual kind of efficient distribution mechanisms. So they bought up a couple of city blocks and are turning it into this regional food hub where all those small farms are going to be connected, you know, that produce and, you know, some animal products, but, but mostly vegetables are going to come right into the center of the city. And then they're going to be distributed out to restaurants and places that, that, that need that produce. Uh, on bike, so it's super low carbon. You know, I mean, it all sounds kind of hippy dippy, but but stuff like that sort of has to happen if people are going to continue to be able to farm, especially you know, not like huge agribusiness style farming, but small to medium sized family farms, and you know, to keep costs down and and to sort of keep the the whole like agriculture pipeline uh, relatively carbon efficient. So. People are experimenting with stuff. I think that's that's really exciting. There's a similar project in the Hudson Valley called the Hudson Valley Farm Hub, and they're trying to do a similar thing where they're getting it's not as urban focused, where it's not going to be as you know like have towns are kind of spread out around here, but same idea of like having a lot of farms contribute to a central location where they can actually distribute from, and it makes it a lot easier as opposed to farmers markets are, are relatively even though they're direct, they're like a pretty inefficient way to get produce to. For sure. consumers and they're they're time consuming i mean they're you know they're 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 a joke like the you know the the, the yuppie going to the farmer's market is a, <laughs> is a constant like you know comedy trope because it's so you know it's so time consuming like if, if you're busy you know like you know my my wife and i we've we've made uh you know picking up stuff from our csa and going to the farmer's market part of our week and it, it's just like we like food we like we like vegetables we like knowing where it comes from we're, we're those fucking portland people <laughs> um, but like yeah i mean for for a lot of people it's just not it's not realistic it doesn't fit into their week so but but they but they should have access to that same stuff efficiently and affordably. Let's talk about tech for a second. So you reminded me of, this is going to sound like a horrible, horrible analogy, but so we were talking, we were talking (laughs) about giant, you know, meat farms in the middle of America and how, how meat is produced. And I know you've written a lot about, and I've, I've loved your writing about startup culture and how that works and how it works to be a young person in the midst of startup culture. So What's your take on, you know, San Francisco and venture capital these oh, days? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to give me a specific answer on that, but I mean, I'm just kind of curious, like we talk about inefficient systems and sometimes to me, you know, and I feel like your writing reflects this a little bit too, that may perhaps that the way we think about building technology products and funding them and getting them to consumers also constitutes a pretty inefficient system that's also maybe just for the the uber wealthy who can afford to visit your app app market every every week when you need to download new apps or whatever Um, right yeah i mean i i think it's 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 messed up in in short (laughs) Um, it's weird i i'm i'm very critical of of that system of that world it's also where i've been spending a lot of my time like you know kind of on any given week, half to three quarters of my time are spent on investing and advising stuff. You know, a, a lot of it is is tech, for-profit, startup-y kind of companies. Some of it's with 
uh, nonprofits and co-ops and other kind of non-traditional organizations. But you know, for all its flaws, it's a system I'm still participating in. So I should I should acknowledge that up front. And I, I do see some you know interesting businesses, interesting technologies, kind of you know, people from underrepresented groups getting funding. So it, you know, it's not. It's not totally broken, but yeah, I mean, when, when you kind of look at the, the numbers broadly, things are, things are fucked up in, in that world. You know, I, I think the, the thing that, that bothers me the most about it is just as someone who loves technology, you know, that's, that's just like what I've been about my, you know, my, like since I discovered that, that, that technology as like a concept, as, uh, as, as a part of, of, of human society existed. Like I've just been fascinated with its evolution, its history, the, the whole thing. I, I think the thing that really rubs me the wrong way about that world is they've kind of claimed that they are the you know hub of, of technological progress and that the venture capital system is is the machine that makes that go forward. And it's just it's just demonstrably untrue. And and when you know I've I've written about it and I've given talks about it, what I've tried to share is the history around that stuff and, and how there's a there's a long, long history of public funding, uh, mostly coming out of, uh, out of wars, unfortunately, you know, a, a little bit out of the space race, of course, but, you know, it was really like the, the post-World War II era that gave us all the technology that powers our world today. It's the, you know, uh, the computers we, we spend our time in, in front of that, that entire paradigm, you know, sort of came out of that cycle of development. And the venture capital world has not reinvested in that right they just keep like you know tilling and tilling and tilling that field and they're just they like they are not replanting it <laughs> and you know it's like with with every cycle you know you sort of get more like product for your dollar uh your investment dollar right uh there you know the, the the line is like oh well now like five guys can go start companies that 10 years ago you had to be this team of like 500 people and everything is is so much more efficient now but you look at what's actually being developed and, and then beyond that, kind of what's being returned to the, the commons that, that, that we can all use in terms of technology. I, and I don't just mean open source. I mean, you know, even, even through patents and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it just sort of seems like the, the pace of, evo of technological evolution um, in information technology anyway, has just been slowing down, 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 down throughout our, our lifetimes. And that's, that's concerning as someone, you know, who, like that's that's always been my world. I would like it to continue to be my world. Not only your world, but like what you know will pay our bills and like continue yeah. to keep us fed. You know, like it's interesting. Like we, I actually have been meeting with a couple of people around here because there's this um, in the Hudson Valley because there's this push to kind of invest a lot of money in tech in the Hudson Valley and like turn it into a hub for tech, which is, which is a positive thing. Like, I think it's a great place to live and it's, it could be a great place to work too. But at the same time, yeah, there's this also side thing where it's like, actually, it seems like most of the innovation these days and what we might want to invest money in is agriculture. And that's actually what's exactly. around here. You know, it's like, there's actually like, I don't want to sound too cynical, but what's the point of investing in another like social media interface that will connect local businesses or local people if it's not actually going to make a huge long-term difference to our daily lives, you know? And that's that seems to be potentially what's lacking in a lot of these these products and a lot of this world. Yeah, I mean, for the for the most part, you know, Valley investors they don't want to touch actual 
you know, atoms if they don't have to, you know, anything that involves lots of people or moving stuff around or digging, you know, digging in the dirt and building something, planting something like that's, you know, why, it's, ris why, it's risky, right? That's, yeah, the, exactly. that's always yeah, the phrase. Yeah. There's, there's execution risk to, you know, with, with all of that stuff. And, and, you know, so if you can, if you can find a better return from build, like funding the next WhatsApp, that's the rational thing to do. You know, I, I think that's, that's one part of it. You know, we, it, it may be that in our lifetimes, things like biotech are going to be more of, of the kind of sphere of, of development that's actually really exciting. Like it, it could be that IT stuff, you know, is plateauing out for, you know, potentially decades, which happens in, in, in fields, right? It happens in entire fields that they're, they're stagnant for, for long periods of time. But oftentimes that's because effort is going elsewhere. So I, I think that's, that's one outcome uh, is that maybe, you know, people like us who grew up like playing with computers and programming and stuff, you know, maybe our skill set is actually about to get very outdated. Uh, which which could be kind of exciting in its in its own way. Like I I would sort of like to be challenged in that way and and have those skills be made less less relevant. Uh, I, I think it would it would push a lot of people to to learn and to see the world in a in a really different way. Because right now, yeah, there's there's so many people who are coasting on just like building the next CMS or you know I, I spend a lot of time in the financial technology world and and that that world has been you know incredibly stagnant. You gave a talk when we were at Paperless Post, and then re more recently, um, Perlin gave a talk at Paperless Post too. And he talked about he was he's one of the most amazing speakers I've ever seen because he created his own system for giving presentations, where it was this crazy thing where he literally like telling the story about how he got into computer graphics, and he was like. And so I just thought about what's a circle and he like draws a circle and he's like, but how do you make it a sphere? And then he tapped it and it becomes like this three dimensional sphere. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Everyone, the entire room was just like, what just happened to my brain? He, he talked a lot about what the future and what, how children will perceive, the next generation will perceive technology. His vision for that is really that they won't perceive it at all. It will just be a part of their lives. And it's just creating things and being able to have basically these augmented realities where you're, you can basically create whatever you imagine. And it's just in front of you. It's just his vision of like how that works. And that completely, I asked him like, what does that mean for who is a programmer in that world? Like, what does that mean? And his answer was really interesting, but it basically was just that, you know, we're all, we'll all be creators, but there will still be some people who have to create the modes of creation, right? No matter what, that'll still be, but it'll be a much wider group of people than ever before. And I think that that's kind of an interesting way to look at it, which means that, yeah, the people who are already doing this now have like a, we have a duty to figure out kind of what, what our roles are going to be kind of in that, in that world where every technology is already just around us everywhere. But like, what can we do to actually make it so that it's useful in a way beyond just like selling ads and selling things to, to individuals? Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the important thing for me is, is not just democratizing access to technology, it's democratizing ownership of, of technology. And so, you know, the, the, the last 30 years has been about democratizing access, like, you know, making personal computers that are easy enough for everyone to use. You know, the, the web has kind of followed a similar trajectory of, you know, at first it was really hard to participate in, in the web at all, especially to, to, to create, to put anything out there. And that's just gotten easier and easier and easier to the, the point that anyone with a mobile device anywhere can 
contribute to this global network pretty pretty trivially. But there's a very, very small number of people that, that own those technologies. And so the wealth that's generated from them and kind of the, the cultural decisions around them, those are still decided by a very small group of people. And, and I think, you know, the, if, if the future is going to be equitable and, and a nice place to live, you know, we, we, need, we need those, those super powerful tools that everyone can, can use to build the, the technologies of, of their dreams. But we also need to make sure that uh, they're, they're collectively owned or someone else is going to be prescribing the limits of those worlds. Yeah, and not and not probably not Amazon. You probably don't want Amazon <laughs> to be the one who owns like every single uh, you know server in the world and how it has all the data and everything like that. But you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you make stuff for computers today and, and you don't you don't see a way uh, where it could be easier and more transparent and universally accessible and universally, you need to dream a little bit more. Um, yeah, and by easier beyond like four less lines of code, right? You right. Know, yeah, like, I mean, I, I, think, I think that that's right. I think that there's, some, there's, an, actual, uh, there's an actual revolution that'll happen. And I, who, knows, who knows what it is people like Sussman thinks it'll be when, you know, processors are like grains of sand. Like, what is computing going to mean then, you know, chemical computing or biological computing or whatever the next actual thing is? I think it's important to participate in a way that ushers that forward to the best of your ability and knowing and yeah. learning a little bit about it is helpful. Yeah. And coming full circle to, you know, kind of San Francisco and the Valley, I, I think the, the reason why I've tried to sort of direct people's attention away from that, that world, or, or at least to encourage that they question it is, you know, the, the, the people who are kind of at the top of, of that community right now, they have no incentive to democratize ownership of those technologies. At Twitter, advocated for kind of a more decentralized and standards-oriented approach. And you know, part of the resistance that I got uh, inside the company was, you know, some someone sort of very high in, in the org chart saying, "Well, but we just don't have like user interface patterns for decentralized things. They're just they're they're hard to use, and and like we're, you know, we'd have to sort of come up with all this stuff and invest in all that stuff." And I was like, "Yeah, that's." That's the that's exactly right. Yeah. Like that's you know that that's the challenge, and 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 if we can help do that, like that's that's our, our contribution, and then there's there's value there. But yeah, you know, if if you're already kind of at the top of that system, it's like yeah, you know, why why would you promote decentralization? Why why would you put that work in? Uh, it's easier just to keep building these kind of walled gardens and you know enticing people into them. That that's a, that sounds so paranoid, but like that that's what keeps happening and and the valuations of, of those companies just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and yeah I, I, I think it's important to examine why that keeps happening and then as you're making career decisions kind of decide like you know is is that the world that you want to facilitate like I, I think you know we sort of all have responsibilities you know if, if you're a programmer you know are you gonna go help build something that's gonna like last 30 years and and that could be you know this really kind of important empowering tool where are you going to go build something that lasts five years and makes a very small group of people very wealthy before they inevitably like run it into the ground and then the wealth that the next round of wealth is like transferred to 
another small group of people that's prescribed by an even smaller group of people. We, I mean, it's interesting because it relates to this conversation that comes up a lot amongst programmers, which is of craftsmanship, right? People always talk about this idea of like, I'm a software craftsman or I'm aiming to be a software craftsman. And when you think about all the like complaints that all, all our grandparents have of like, oh, cars ain't what they used to be, you know, like right. the craftsmanship ain't what it used to be. Like, I think, you know, the same could probably be said for software too. It's like, and that's, I can't necessarily point to a specific place where the incentives went awry that we are building things that are explicitly basically not meant to last. Like, and we, we talk about like what long-term software is like now. And we're talking like two years, like is this app that I wrote like, yeah, like going to survive two years, not like NASA code that, you know, is like still in space 30 years later, you know, and they're very different incentives and very different aims. And I think it's hard for us to ever claim to be craftsmen if we're like not thinking about things in sure. that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, move, move fast and break things. That's, that's capital talking, right? You know, that's, that's, you know, the, that isn't necessarily good for users. It's not necessarily good for, for, you know, software workers and customer support staff and the other people that have to support that stuff, but trying to figure out how, you get your product or service to make as much money as possible in as short a time as possible is great for capital. I, I, it, it disturbs me a little bit when I see people who are not, you know, really in, in the capital position, who are, are not going to benefit from from that mentality, adopting it anyway and running with it, and you know, bringing it to conferences, bringing it to to kind of our industry's culture. It's like this is not making the world a better place, and you're not even benefiting from it. Like. Most, most, you know, programmers, even most CTOs, if you kind of look at their portion of the, the cap table, you know, the ownership structure of most startups, they are not the ones doing super well. Part of the Silicon Valley mythology is like, oh, all these smart techie, you know, makers are, are getting rich. And that's not really true. Uh, it's, you know, it's like random VPs of whatever. It's, you know, money guys, it's sales guys. Um, the, the tech folks are still kind of somewhere in the middle to, to bottom. So, so yeah, you know, why, what, yeah, why, why, why run with, with that mentality? There definitely is some, you know, people need, or maybe not, but there, the, the theory is that people need money to, to like make a business and start a business. And usually the people who want to start that business don't necessarily have that money to, For sure. to, to actually bootstrap it and do it. But at the same time, the structure that gets created, you know, definitely takes advantage of the people who have the most, you know, the most to put into it in terms of like brain power and effort. And it doesn't it doesn't really reward them in the same way as the people who just started with the money to begin with. Right. You know, like it's pretty easy to to get rich once you're rich. But uh, if you're if you're not, then it's not it's not going to it's going to be a little more difficult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, or basically impossible. Or basically impossible. <laughs> <laughs> if you do the math, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think ending with why is a good way to <laughs> If you don't question the status quo, you are the status quo. So I think it's cool to that's we like to have people on the show that ask ask uh good questions. I like questions that have no answers. So um so thanks Alex for joining us. Uh it was nice of you to we had we had some random scheduling things, but I'm really glad it worked out and, uh, wish you the best of luck in all your, in all your endeavors. And 
I hope that your uh, fast food burger place spreads <laughs> easy. <laughs> I, hope, um, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care.